Thank you so much for joining us for Kingdom Rock Radio. On today's broadcast, Pastor Sumiko Stroud is going to teach from the book of Galatians. Now let's join her in this series entitled Journey Through the Book of Galatians. This is session number four. God's riches at Christ's expense. Uh, and I know we feel compelled to do what we can to earn it. But let us always remind ourselves to remember uh, that grace is a free gift of God uh, that we cannot earn and that we do not deserve. Uh, that's why it is grace. And we are thankful for God's grace. And we know that salvation comes uh, by grace uh, through faith alone, uh, not by our works. So we can't do enough good to earn our salvation. But we do know that once we have received salvation, we are compelled to do things for the glory of God, uh, not so that we can be better in his eyes, but simply out of the relationship, the fact that we want to show him our love and appreciation. Just like when we're in relationships with one another, when you're in a friendship uh, with someone, you want to do things for them to make them happy, not so they can receive you, uh, just so that you can express to them your love uh, for them. Now, if in your relationships you're always doing good, hoping that the other person is going to receive you more or like you more, that, my dear brothers and sisters, is what we call a dysfunctional relationship. And we don't want to be involved in those. We do to express our love, not to earn love from somebody else. Okay? All right. Well, good. See, there you go. little psychology lesson for you. Didn't cost you anything extra. All right, Galatians chapter 4. I'm reading from the King James Version this morning. Uh, now, I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, differs nothing from a servant, though he be lord of all, but is under tutors and governors until the time appointed of the father. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about heirs, uh, those who stand in um, the place of being able to inherit upon the death of someone, being able to inherit the estate. And we say, we are saying here, Paul is saying here, remember we're still talking to the churches in Galatia. It's just not one church, but Galatia was a province. So there were several churches in the area. He had been there and taught them about salvation and about grace uh, and, and about how it was not working to fulfill the law or working to try to carry out. Now, when we think about the law, sometimes we get caught up and we think about the Ten Commandments. Well, there, there were more than ten. Now, you know, we usually think about the ten with the experience with Moses on Mount Sinai, but there were many, many laws, over 600 uh, to be exact. So for those of you who want to work to keep the law, you have more than ten. And if we were struggling with those ten, Oh my goodness, the other 590-something, okay? So it is more than just the Ten Commandments. And what he was telling them is he had gone and he had taught them about salvation and about grace. And after he left, then there was, a, remember, another group that came in and said, well, that is all well and good, but he didn't give you the full picture. Because in addition to that, you've got to still be circumcised. We remember our talk about circumcision and how what that ineffectively would do was to bring them back under the law. 
So we're going to talk a little bit more about that as he's still talking uh, with the people in Galatia to the churches, this letter written to them that we can still benefit from because we have a tendency to try to put ourselves back under the law. And the law had its place and its purpose, and we'll see that today uh, through some other examples. So when we talk about the child uh, of the king or a child of a wealthy person, while they are still a child, um, they are no more than a servant meaning that they uh, don't really have the run of the household, so to speak, but they are governed uh, by someone else. Now, we don't have kings and queens in our country, but we do have a slew of wealthy people. And usually when wealthy people have children, what do those children have that are you know, over them? Tutors, governors, wait, nannies, you know, like, but there's somebody that's a servant in the household that is over the children. And that's the example that we're talking about here. Although that child, in the case of the parent's death, will inherit the entire estate, while they are still a child, they are no more than a servant because they are being ruled or governed or taught by a servant. And that's for a purpose, to teach them, to train them uh, as a schoolmaster, so to speak, to prepare them for when they do step into that role of adulthood. Now, and, and he's telling us that likewise with us, with the law, Remember, we have said the law was equated to a schoolmaster uh, before, because what did the law do? It taught us that on our own, we can't do this, that we need a savior. And that teaching was there for a purpose so that we would be prepared when that savior came, we would be prepared to receive him. And so he's telling them that um, the the heir, um, while he's still a child, is no more than a servant, But when the appointed time of the father, now in the uh, Roman uh, culture, remember we were under under Roman rule at the time, it was a part of their culture, adoption. And and then the scriptures this morning, we're not going to read the whole passage. Hopefully you've all had, you've had a couple of weeks to read chapter four. I'm not even going to look at anybody's faces to see who has, but there is some talk about adoption. And what may be a little confusing is that typically when we think of adoption, we think of a child that has no parents that needs a home or a child whose parents are not in a position to care for them and so they are putting them in someone else's care, but typically you think of a baby. Um, well, this uh, ritual or this under these rules and regulations, adoption was not about a baby. It was about a full-grown child. And you were not adopting somebody else's child. You were adopting your own. And what would happen uh, was that uh, the child would be raised in the household, in in a wealthy person's household, and they would be trained and they would be under governors and and, uh, under servants. And when the father uh, saw that the son had reached a level of maturity, a time where he thought he was capable of coming in and making decisions uh, that were binding uh, uh, on the father and on the household. Now, in our government, we typically say, what, at 18, you're an adult, and there's some things you can do. And at 21, then there's a few more other things that you can do. But in this particular culture, at this time, that wasn't the case. It wasn't a set number. It was when the father looked and decided at the appointed time when he came to the conclusion that, okay, this child is ready to step into adulthood. And when that time came, then he would go into the public forum, which would be like our sort of courthouse, and he would make a proclamation uh, that I am adopting my son. Or in essence, he's good, he's ready, I'm keeping him. 
And then he would place his ring on his finger. It was a signet ring. So that when the son made decisions, then using that ring gave him the full authority of the father and his father would back up his decisions and he would place a robe on him and that let them know that he is now, this is my son, um, not just my child. We already knew it was a child, but now this is my son standing in the position of heir, able to make decisions uh, and act on my behalf. Now, does any of that sound familiar to you? that perhaps when there was a child that reached a particular age and they went and they were baptized and there was what? There was a public proclamation. Remember when Jesus went and John baptized him? This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. So this is, okay, hear him now. He's ready to go forth into this ministry uh, that I've called him to. Even we see some with the prodigal son, how when he leaves and he comes back and says, well, at least let me just be a servant in my father's household as opposed to sleeping out here. I've already squandered all of my money and rather than me sleep out here in the pig pen and eat stuff with these pigs, uh, you know, my father's servants have it better than this. At least let me go back and just be a servant in his household. And what does the father do when he sees his son he places uh, the robe on him, the ring on him, and he's recognizing him. This is my son. He's come home. He's mature. He's ready to go forth as an adult. So that happens to us somewhat in, in a way. When we were children, uh, when we were young, we were under the law. Not us in particular young, but us human mankind. As young, we were under the law. And when God saw that it was the father saw that the appointed time was ready, he sent his son to redeem us from that law, uh, to place us then not just as children, but as heirs, as sons uh, that we are now adopted into the body. Um, not that that's when we become uh, children of God because we're a child of God at, you know, at the point of being uh, saved, but now we are sons. This is gender neutral, not so. It's not like sons and daughters. We are sons and that we stand in a place of authority and that we can act on his behalf. Now, now that that has happened, do you think it would then be appropriate to go back home under the nanny? No. Because how many of us, once we graduated from high school, took off our cap and gown and went that next year and enrolled into kindergarten so that we could learn our ABCs all over again? That would be the equivalent. Now you're an adult. Now it's time to go out and be responsible and not obey because you have to. That's what the law does for us. When we obey the law, we obey because we have to, because we know that there are penalties if we don't. Once we step into our sonship, salvation is all about obedience to God because we want to. We choose to serve him. We choose to not kill, to not steal, to not whatever, because we know that any of those things would hinder our relationship with him, and we don't want to hinder that relationship with him. We don't want anything that's going to clog it up. Any, any, you don't want to let any of the icky in. Just like in our natural relationships with one another. If I know that there are some things that if I do to you is going to cause some friction in our relationship, I don't not do them because of the, the penalty. Well, that may be against the law. You know, case in point, if you've got a married couple, now technically in most areas, although you'd be hard pressed to find anybody actually um, 
put this law in action, but technically in most places it is against the law to commit adultery. I mean, criminal, punishable, you could go to jail for. Now they probably don't do it now because there's probably nobody in the courtroom who could enforce such a thing (laughs) that wouldn't have to then incriminate themselves. But for whatever reason, but now if you had a married couple and if your spouse were to say to you, the only reason I haven't cheated on you is because I don't want to go to jail. Well, doesn't that take a little bit away from their faithfulness? It just it takes a little, there's not a, there's not a whole lot there that you'd be like, oh, I'm so grateful. You know, you don't, you don't get that. But when your spouse is faithful to you because they love you and they know that it would hurt the relationship, well, that's something else, right? And that is how we are with God. When we bring ourselves back under the law and then we say, I'm not going to do these things because I don't, I fear the punishment. That is not um, as wonderful or doesn't mean as much as I will refrain from doing things that is always, that is within my right to do because I don't want to hinder our relationship. So when we do that, when we just suffer the, are afraid of the consequences, it's very easy for us to slip into legalism. And that was going on here, was that they were trying to get them back into legalism. And that's when the outward event uh, becomes more important to you or a substitute for the inward experience. That's when you read your Bible uh, for so many minutes or whatever a day because you're supposed to. As a Christian, we should read our Bible, we should pray, we should come to church. And when your church activities or all of that just becomes, that is the basis of your salvation. You're not trying to get any closer to God. You're not trying to build a relationship with Jesus Christ. You're not trying to be the person that he has called you to be. You simply want to make sure that at the end of the day, I can check off, well, I prayed today. I read my Bible today. I've gone to church two, three, well, two and a half out of the four Sundays this month, because that one Sunday I really slept through it, but I was there, so I'm going to give myself partial credit, you know, because I showed up. You know, when we get to that kind of thing, watch out, you slipped into legalism. And although it may feel good to say that you've accomplished those things, we've not done anything in the eyes of God. We've not uh, nurtured that relationship. We've not made it better. So that's what we're talking about here. We don't want to get caught up in this. Okay. Now it goes on uh, through there, and he's talking about because we are now sons, uh, we can cry, Abba, Father. And Abba uh, was a term of endearment, kind of like Papa, uh, so that we don't have to look at God as being, you know, creator of all so far away. I cannot touch him. I cannot reach him. I'm just a lowly creation. Um, you know, I, I, I cannot stand in his presence. It is true that we should uh, be in awe of God, but he's a personal savior. That's what makes it so wonderful, <clears throat> excuse me, is that I don't have to go through someone else to get to him. I can get to him on my own. Now, how many of us with our parents, you'd have a completely different relationship altogether. Let's say if my child, Jasmine, If the only way she felt like she could talk to me was through someone else, that would be a pretty messed up relationship, wouldn't it? 
if she didn't feel comfortable to come and ask me now, she may have something that she needs to talk to me about that may make her a little uncomfortable. And, you know, she may have to ease her way into it just because she's not sure what I'm going to respond, how I'm going to respond. But not that she's afraid that I'm going to reject her or just say, get out of my house there thou leave my presence. You know, I'm not going to do anything like that. <clears throat> now, she is right to be in awe of me because, frankly, I am awesome. But she, she still knows that as her, as her parent, she can come to me and she can say mama or she can go uh, to her father and she can say daddy and she can have an audience with him and she can talk with him. That is how we should be as members of the body of Christ. You don't have to only get to God through Pastor Stroud. You don't have to wait until you get to church and say, will you pray and ask God about this going on in my life because I don't think he'll hear me. We don't have to do that. Now, we can come and ask him to join us in prayer. And there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, we can come to each other and ask each other, join me in prayer or help me with this. Or I don't completely have an understanding. Can you show me? So there's nothing wrong with coming for help, but we don't have to go through someone else. So can we see how in some uh, churches, how, how that is, has been like a hindrance. You can see how some things are not quite right uh, because the spirit of God has given us uh, the freedom to come before, to lift up our hands and cry out, Abba, Father, uh, to pray to him uh, or to seek his face as sons uh, and not have to go through someone else. Okay, now on through uh, chapter four, Paul does, uh, he presents to us an allegory. There's a literary term for you. Uh, an allegory, when you have a story or an account that means more than just what it says on its face. There's some deeper meaning. One of the most famous allegories uh, is the book and or movie Pilgrim's Progress that we saw here just the other week. Now, I'm sure that as we were watching it, we knew that it was more than just about a dude named Christian who happened to live in this city with a weird name called Destruction. You know, so it symbolized the Christian walk uh, as we're leaving where we are and trying to reach heaven and the obstacles that are in our way. And so Paul uses this uh, sort of literary uh, term as he goes through and, re and recounts um, the story. Now, our story of Abraham and Sarah is not fiction. It is, in fact, uh, a true account, but he uses it as an allegory. So we have Abraham and we have his wife, Sarah. And God appears to Abraham when he's very old. That's in Genesis chapter 21. Y'all can go back and read that. And he tells him, well, a little bit earlier than that, that he's going to be the father of many nations and his ascendants are going to be as innumerable as the sand, as the um, sand on the shore and as the stars in the sky. Well, what's wrong with that promise? Well, at the time he's telling him that Abraham is old, Sarah is old, and how many children do they have? None. And so he's telling him, you're going to, your descendants and Abraham's like, okay, God, well, how's that? Because the only person in my household right now that would inherit is going to be one of the servants because we don't have any children. But God gives him this promise and he believes God and God, he's accounted uh, righteous. And so they go on and then, so he says, okay, he tells his wife, we're going to have a son. Woohoo, I'm barren. I'd love to have some kids. Okay. So time goes on a lot of time. 
goes on. Still, no child. So Abraham gets to be about 85, and Sarah says, Abraham, look, why don't you take my servant Hagar to be your wife, right? And you go into her, and you have a child with her, and that will be the promised child. Because that's what God needs, right? Our help when he promises us something. And that's what we have a tendency to do. God speaks into our lives and he says, this is going to happen. We wait not even 10 or 15 years. We wait 10 or 15 minutes. It hasn't happened. We may give God a week. It hasn't come to pass. So then we figure, well, I'll know what. I will make this happen. He'll bless it because I'm just trying to help him out. That's what we have a tendency to do. I don't know what it is about us that we think that we have to help God and we can't just be patient and let the promise come to pass. It would almost be better if he just didn't even say, wouldn't it? If he just don't don't even say, and then when it happens, it happens. Sarah's probably thinking, I'm already resigned to having no children. Why even bring it up? But now my hopes are up and now here. So we've got all this time has passed. So he, she tells him to go into Hagar and have a son. Now the law does permit that, but there's one problem. Hagar is a servant. So the law also says that any child you have with her is going to be a servant as well. That's all they will ever be is a servant. Now, God has told you that this is going to be the promised child and that he's going to inherit all of this and all of these nations are going to come after him, that doesn't job with the fact that this child is going to be a servant. So here we have when flesh comes into play and we add our little thing and we do what we're going to do to help God, we end up with an Ishmael, right? And that is Hagar's son with Abraham. They end up with Ishmael. And so they think, okay, well, everything is going to be great. This is the child. This is where the promise is going to come through. And God comes back and he's like, no, he's not the promise. I told you I would make your father of many nations. I'm going to bless you with the child. And so after a little bit more time goes by, then we finally have the child by Abraham and Sarah. And what's his name? Isaac. Isaac is the promised child. Or we could say the child of the spirit because we know it was beyond what they could do. Ishmael is the child of the flesh because he's a result of Sarah and Abraham's impatience and their desire to help things along. So we look at Hagar as being symbolic of the law. Therefore, a particular purpose uh, to sort of fill in a temporary need uh, because Sarah couldn't do or didn't think she would be able to do what God said that they would do. And so the law was there to fill a need. Well, where the law is, there is flesh. The Bible um, describes Ishmael as being wild, a wild man, not able to be controlled, not even by his own mom. Now, we are, when we look at our flesh as our our bodies, our desires, we are wild people, are we not? Cannot be controlled. You know, we have, excuse me, all these weird, well, not we, but some people, not even going to put myself in, has some really weird desires, and they can't seem to get a handle on things. Uh, And so the law shows us where we need some help. The law attempts to control our flesh. 
And when we look at the commandments, that's what it's doing, isn't it? It It's trying to control our flesh. Don't take something, you know, don't steal. So if it's not yours, don't take it. Don't covet. Don't look at something that belongs to somebody else and wish it were yours, right? Don't kill, you know, don't, you know, all those kinds of things. It is trying to make an effort to control, just like the rest of our laws in the land, make an effort to try to control um, our flesh, our desires. And sometimes they are effective if we fear enough the consequences. But as we know, in today's time, most people don't. They are out to gratify themselves and they don't so much fear the consequences or either they don't fear them or they just somehow in their mind don't connect that if I do this, this is what's going to be the consequence. If so, people wouldn't do the things they did. You know, they put those signs up in the, um, in the store, shoplifters, you know, will be, uh, persecuted, yeah, will be prosecuted. And they, they hope that that's going to instill enough fear in you that you won't steal. But some people, the whole time they're reading that sign are lifting them some shop, aren't they? Just putting stuff and they just like, oh, okay. Because they don't think they're going to get caught or they, they just don't fear it, right? Even I look at even in our food bank, we have cameras that are up. And we had an instance where somebody took something that was in view. I mean, it was in plain view of one of the cameras. That still didn't deter them. And so then I was scrolling through the camera footage to see who took what. And they saw me scrolling through the camera footage and still said not a word. Because the flesh cannot be tamed. It's unruly, right? It does what it wants and leaves you holding the bag. Have you ever got so caught up in something that felt good at the time, and then afterwards you were like, oh, what in the world was that about? You know, I have to think about that when you see these um, TV shows, or you may have friends uh, that go out and drink, and they get so stupid, you know, sloppy drunk, that they're doing just all kind of crazy stuff, and they don't even remember it the next day. And you figure, okay, once you've experienced that, where you wake up in a strange place and somebody has to explain to you where the last 12 hours went, that perhaps they won't do that again. But the flesh is unruly, right? Because just as soon as Friday rolls around again, there they go. And you think, oh, wow, okay. It's wild, doesn't want to be tamed. But we have Sarah here who is symbolic of grace, where we have the power of God helping us to do something that we could not do on our own and the promise comes through her and we have the spirit uh, sim- uh, Isaac symbolic of the spirit uh, operating in our lives so when we do follow grace let God work in our lives let's not get so caught up in trying to do it on our own I know we're tempted there's something about us that makes us feel like if I'm not doing it it won't be done. But this is a situation where we cannot do it on our own. Just go ahead and be okay with it. There are some things in our lives that we can fix. There are some things that we cannot fix. The state of our souls is one of them. We are in need of a savior. We cannot make it under the law. We cannot keep all 10 commandments, let alone all 600. 
and we are not made or we're not prepared to deal with the consequences of them. Because the thing about the law is it wasn't just, well, if you keep a percentage of it, you're okay. You had to keep the whole thing, not just one day of your life, but your entire life. I can't do anything that consistently. I don't even breathe every second of my life for my entire life. Do you realize that, that, that sometimes you may catch yourself, you're like, I, I wasn't even breathing. You know, <laughs> so there is not anything, you think about it, you, there is not anything that I can do every second of the day for my entire life. So why put yourself back in that bondage? Why say, okay, I'm saved, now what? And then you go back. Don't graduate from high school and go back to kindergarten unless you're the teacher. Don't go back and enroll. Once you've learned your ABCs, I know what the law has taught me is that I need a savior. I can't do this on my own. I need the grace of God. I need his Holy Spirit inside me, helping me to make better choices, helping me each day to do what I need to do, not because I fear the penalty, but because I want to be closer to the Lord. I want a relationship with him, right? Because I, I just, I want to build that. I want to experience his love and I want to share with him and be the kind of person that he wants me to be. Not because I'm afraid of what other people will think of me or I'm, you know, what are my parents going to think of me? When we do right, simply because we want to please God, that takes a little of the pressure off of you, right? Because if you mess up, it's okay. I did this, I shouldn't have. Lord, I repent, I'm sorry. Help me to when I come to this decision again that I will go right instead of left. And don't get all caught up in you know, the fact that you messed up and then you just, I can't believe I messed up, I can't believe. But how many of us have ever been in a public place and tripped and failed? Anybody? Did you stay down there and I can't believe I fell? Oh my God, I can't. And you know, and you're just all embarrassed because everybody saw you and you just help bury your head and ball up into the fetal position and cry and I can't believe I fell and stay down there. No, what do you do? You get up as quickly as possible, right? As quickly. Yeah, and look, you know, and you try to do a little damage control and then you just sort of move on. Or those of you fashionable, you get up, stick the landing, and then you keep going, right? <laughs> okay, you know, show off a little something and then you go. But the fact is you get up. Because as embarrassing as it may be, part of you realizes that everybody that saw you has had an equally embarrassing situation. We're all in this together. I've messed up. You've messed up. Some of us may have messed up together, may have made it a team effort. But the fact of the matter is, it's done. You get up, you repent, you dust yourself off, and you try next time you're walking down that road to see the crack in the sidewalk so you don't trip over it again. Or you tie up your shoelace so that the next time you don't stumble and fall. But there's no point in just wallowing in it and then trying to do all of these acts of repentance and try to make it right. Just be grateful for his grace and say, Lord, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Because sometimes when we do things, it's not even by accident. 
Some people have planned, you know, when some people say, I, I slipped up, and you don't slip up and steal something that belongs to somebody else. You, you know, you kind of planned that when you saw it, even if you only planned it briefly, you planned it. So sometimes we will do things purposely because it is gratifying to our flesh. The wonderful thing about God is he will even forgive those acts. And we can say, Lord, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. Pick yourself up. Dust yourself off, move on ahead. Aren't we grateful for God's grace? Let's not take ourselves back into bondage. The thing about salvation is once we've experienced it, the next step is to enjoy it. And if you're not enjoying your work, your walk with God, then you may need to stop and have a conversation with yourself. You may have slipped back into legalism where you're just going through the motions, but you're not really building the relationship. We're not about religion in here, which is just a set of things that we do every day. You can do anything religiously. We're not about religion. We're about building relationships, okay? All right, very good. Guys, we're going to pick up next week with chapter five, uh, and we are going to consider ourselves dismissed. We pray that you are richly blessed by today's message. We would love to connect with you. Just go to our website at kingdomrock.org. You can become our friend on Facebook or follow us on Twitter and subscribe to our YouTube channel and a whole lot more right there at kingdomrock.org. We would love to hear from you. And if you're in the Bremen area, please stop by and join us every Sunday morning. Sunday school is at 9 a.m. and Sunday morning is at 10. Wednesday night, we have what's called Hour of Power. It starts at 6.30 p.m. All are invited. We're located at 180 Helton Road in Bremen, Georgia. Give us a call at 770-537-1933. We would love to hear from you. And if you have a prayer request, by all means, please log on to our website at kingdomrock.org and click on the prayer page. Until tomorrow, remember that Jesus is Lord. Choose him as your Lord today. Only he can make a way.